welcome to the Change Book Radio Show with your host, work-life fit expert, Deb Crow. Join Deb every week as she interviews the co-authors from all over the globe. They'll share their insights into self-empowerment with their personal stories and real-life experiences that will help your own personal development and touch every area of your life. Join Deb every Wednesday on Blog Talk Radio at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Good afternoon. Gina, are you there? I am, yes, I am there. I've been emailing you because I wasn't sure if I had the right number. Oh, you did, and we're live, and I apologize. So we're a little bit late getting started. Uh, We have some rain going on here in Canada, and and technology has not been kind to me. So welcome, everybody, to the Changebook Radio Show. Hello. It's uh, Wednesday, May the 24th, and I'm delighted to be doing this week's show uh, midday. So Gina Gardner from Book 11 can join us because she's across the pond in jolly old England, and it's dinner time for her. So, Gina, welcome to the show. Thank you, and I'm very pleased to be with you, and hello to everyone who's listening. Well, I I read your chapter with with great ease and a lot of excitement, and I I think I want the theme for our show today to be living a life of being imperfectly perfect, because you have certainly had an interesting life and career, and I always feel synergy amongst the co-authors in the Change Book series, just for us being the same global community, but my background is medical case management, so to see and and to see what you have endured and and overcome from your skiing accident is it, it just brings such joy when I read your chapter, Gina, because you you can have a mindset to move on or to stay stuck, and I think that's the consistent thread of your chapter. So so let's dive right in and let me ask you some questions. And as always, my first question is. What drew you to join us as a co-author in the global book series with Jim Britt and Jim Lutz? I think a number of things. Firstly, um, I work with um, all sorts of clients, and one of the things that's become very clear to me is how many people are living a life where they feel unhappy, unfulfilled, and that they're focusing on things which are negative. And I believe that my purpose is uh, about helping people feel empowered. And so part of uh, the motivation for joining the, the Change Book group was to be seen on a bigger stage, to actually get to more people um, across the world, to give some very simple messages that can make a very big difference to their lives. I'd also... Um, I've been a reader of the Chicken Soup to the Soul series, and so whilst I didn't know of Jim... Brit, I knew of the series and his uh, connection to that was also a draw. And I also wanted to have a a group of like-minded people, people who wanted to make a difference, to have a a peer group who were positive and looking forward and, and wanting to make a difference too. Well, I, I certainly concur with that, and I, I call our, our global community a tribe of positive influence because we have authors and speakers and coaches from all over the world, and I think we bring our own true life experiences to our coaching practice or to our speaking business, and I think that makes us authentic. What I want to ask you is, As a case manager, I often saw both sides of the fence with my clients as they were going through rehab, and they either chose to fall into the victim mode, and I know that's part of the recovery cycle, or they chose to just be unbelievably optimistic and inspiring and positive. How did you get to that mindset, and did you have any support or was it a combination of support and just having that emotional tenacity? What brought you there to 
literally teach yourself how to walk again, and you did it twice. Um, I think it's a very simple explanation and a very complex one. At its most simple level, I could be at home watching daytime television, not able to reach a cup unless somebody had put it down on the counter for me. Or I could go into school, and I ran a large school at that time. Um, I could be successful at what I did, and I loved what I did. I could operate because my mouth worked, my brain worked, my hands worked, um, and I could operate as a fully functional member of the human race doing something I loved, or I could sit at home and contemplate my navel and recognize how disabled I was. So at one level, for me, it was a complete no-brainer that um, I, I couldn't bear um, being in a place where I didn't feel I had any real sense of control or function. And so for me, getting on was a great distraction, incredibly good pain control, um, because when I was interested, I didn't actually um, uh, focus on how I felt. I focused on how I could make um, things at school work even better. So that's at one level. I also come from the sort of, of a family where um, I can remember as a child being told, you know, saying, I don't feel very well, and being told, well, go and do something useful, and actually you'll feel better. So some of it, I think, is around upbringing. Um, and I had at school a huge family of people who were very supportive um, and who had the same idea about wanting to develop excellence, not only for the pupils, but for the teachers and staff and parents too. So it was very easy really to make the decision to get on and be useful and, um, and to function at that level rather than focus on what I couldn't do. That's not to say there weren't some dark days. Of course there were. But ultimately, um, you know, going to the light and going to, uh, to a feeling of, of purpose and success seemed to me a much better option. Well, and I, I agree with you. And I, I like that you said it didn't happen with having dark days. There's always regression. While you're working on progression, I think regression and I think failure sometimes leads to those to those great moments. And, and we talk about success so much on our show here. And every co-author that I've interviewed to date has said how they've had so many failures. And that's where I think we learn the depths of who we are, what we really want, and what we need to move on towards that next barrier or obstacle. I loved in your chapter that you did little mini subjects, if you will, around the holistic part of genuinely being ourselves, or as you say, genuinely you. And you talked about learning to use your resource wisely. And I would like you to give the listeners a little insight to why you write the way you wrote about and how you really tapped into that money as a form of energy, because that's a big barrier for a lot of people. So can you give us a little insight and overview onto how you tapped into using your resources wisely and how it's attributed to your success? I think probably the one to start with um, is energy. Um, energy, physical energy I'm talking about, um, is very much a finite resource, and it's one I'm very short of. That's one of the uh, downsides of, of all of my medical history is that I struggle with fatigue. And so I had to start really making um, the energy that I had absolutely count. And I think in the first instance, looking at what was it sensible for me to focus on, which were the things that actually only I could do, which were the things that I could delegate to other people. And by teaching other people what I wanted them to do, um, not only did that free my time, it also meant that I had a better understanding of what I was doing. But then that brought that skill or that experience to somebody else, and they in turn to somebody else. And so, if you like, it's like throwing a, a, a stone in the pond. It's like a ripple effect. And if you delegate effectively rather than just dumping stuff, it can have an incredibly powerful effect on other people's development too. So 
looking at energy was, I suppose, my first really um, conscious look at how to use resources. And that, like so many things, comes from the necessity. I then became aware that, of this whole business around how we make choice and how every choice has a consequence and actually how so often the not making the choice has a consequence. Um, and I think that's really important when you look at money because there are lots of people who um, are struggling because they haven't got enough money or they feel they haven't got enough money. And I think some of that's ancestral, some of that's familial, you know, money doesn't grow on trees, you've got to work hard to get everything you've got. But also, if you look at the decisions that you make about money, um, you can make the decision to go and buy a new pair of shoes or a new handbag, or you can put that money towards something which is an investment in you, coaching, a course, as long as you actually don't see the course as the outcome, it's just a catalyst for change. Um, and so for me, money is very much like my relationship with money is very much my relationship with energy. How do I make it work for me? So there's what I call good debt in the sense that, you know, I, for example, I've invested in, in a, a small portfolio of properties for which I have a mortgage, but that ultimately is giving me an income and it is also accruing interest because of the intrinsic value of the property growing over time. And so making the decisions about money, what you focus on, if you focus on lack, then ultimately that's what seems to come to you. And I'll give you a, a very practical example of what I mean. When I first bought my portfolio of houses, I went through a really bad patch of um, lots of repairs, people not paying their rent. And I felt I was working to support the houses. And I had a, a few months where I was really focusing every time a bill came on thinking, oh my goodness, this is really bad news, this is not what I intended. And it seemed that those bills proliferated. I then recognized what I was doing and actually um, had a really good talking to myself um, over a period of a few weeks. And I created a very different approach that was when a bill came in to um, look at how that was improving my housing stock, therefore it was building into my investment. And the strange thing is that instead of the bills arriving on a daily basis, the bills seem to be coming less frequently and be less big. Now, that doesn't mean I don't have to spend on my houses, but what it does mean is that my attitude towards that spending has changed. Instead of a feeling of dread, um, it's a feeling of this is uh, an integral part of building uh, my, my nest egg, if you like. Um, and there has been not only a perceived sense of those bills slowing down, but if I actually look at the, um, the, the balance sheet, that is the reality too. And so I, it was just for me proof that if you focus on lack, you get more lack. If you focus on um, nurturing money and making sound decisions, it's not just about wishing it to be so. You've got to make decisions that underpin that. Then you make more of that energetic process. And just another example, I work with quite a lot of therapists and many therapists are very wary about putting a value to their time and they don't want to charge or they charge very little. And I'd say there's two things. One is if you don't value your time, nobody else will. And the second is actually from the person who's on the receiving end, that they get a greater perceived value from the interaction. So now, if I am uh, working with people, I either do it full price, or there are times when I choose to do it for free because that the circumstances are very difficult for the other person. What I don't do is cut price. And I have found that the results that I get from um, for and from those clients is very different. Well, and I fully agree with you because I believe that we have to serve others and I think that you just frame that so beautifully. If you don't, if we don't value our time, our resources, our experience, our schooling, then other people are going to pick up on that energy as you talk about 
And like you, Gina, I often do some pro bono work, but I find when I do do it pro bono, I land up reaping the rewards tenfold as I move forward because some people just genuinely need our help and aren't in that financial position to maybe afford it. But like you, I will not discount my fees or discount my belief or even who I am in the service that I offer. So I think that's a really, really good point. So I want to ask you how your health is today and your physical health. And I know you said that you struggled a little bit with fatigue. So how, what are your strategies that you use from day to day to balance that, to maintain your physical health? Um, the first thing is I've had a, an internal spinal stimulator fitted in 2004, which is like an internal TENS machine. And prior to that, I couldn't walk probably more than three or four steps. I'm, my mobility is the best it's been since 2000, well, actually the best it's been since 1996. I can walk short distances. I don't use the wheelchair in the house or the garden. And if we go to a restaurant and I can walk in from the car park and so on. So, and that's brilliant. And it's, it, although progress is very slow, I can see, you know, if I look back to last year, I can do a bit more this year than I could last year. So that's really great. Um, fatigue is an ongoing challenge, and I've, I have to, have had to learn to manage that. And um, one of the things that um, I try very hard to do is uh, around self-care and working on the principle. If you imagine a jug, and if you have the jug and it's full of water and you just keep emptying the jug very quickly, the jug is empty. But what I try to do, and there are times when I, I succeed and other times when I get it wrong, um, but that's my aim, is if you imagine filling the jug with water from a tap, ultimately the jug will fill and then overflow. And so using the overflow for people um, and to do the things that I want to do. And if I, um, if I get it right, then there's plenty of overflow to go around. So I do have to be very mindful. Um, I also find that things that other people take for granted, you know, a minor thing like going to the dentist or um, having a minor procedure or um, having a cold, um, that will knock me off my perch. And I have to be very mindful about um, taking care of my body because I, I think for years and years I didn't listen to the body. I just got on and did. Um, and that probably made my physical... Um, situation was. It was a very good way of managing at one level, um, but at another level, I've learned now to be much more mindful um, of looking after my body and eating properly and all of those things that, um, that will help um, me maximize uh, the facility that I have. Well, and just having a holistic approach uh, is what it sounds like you're doing, and, and you talk about that in your chapter as well. Now, I noticed that at the end of your chapter, you offered the readers uh, of the change book, and you're in number 11, a free life audit tool as a download. And I was wondering if you would give the listeners a little overview of that and the website that they could uh, possibly download that to maybe do their own audit, if, if you will. Could you just give us a little bit of info on that? The, um, the audit tool is um, gives you an opportunity to look at um, very simply each of the areas of your life, professionally, relationships, love, health, and so on, and ask you to think about those areas of your life and to score them out of 10. 10 out of 10 is it's perfect, I don't want to change it. 1 out of 10, it's pretty um, rocky. And then it's, it's all set within a wheel. Um, and to ask people then to look at, is this the wheel that you'd like to have on your car or your bicycle? Would it give you a smooth ride or a, a bumpy ride? And so it's a first step auditing which of the things that you want to protect and keep as they are and which of the things that you would um, like to change so that you can prioritize. Also on the website, people can access um, a seven-part free video around the principles of living a happy and successful life. And they can find those at um, http genuinely-u.com um, forward slash seven principles. 
Um, and they'll find lots and lots of really free resources on their podcasts, all sorts of things um, that will he help explore some of the, the things that we've touched on, but in a much greater detail. Well, and I thank you for that. And I will provide that um, in our episode info description so people can click on that and have the ability to do that audit tool and also watch your video series. So thank you for offering that. What do That's you what, what do you think is is your biggest struggle as a coach or speaker or author um, as of today and going forward? Not not relational to any of your fatigue or, or physical limitations that you may have some days, but just as an entrepreneur. Um, I think it's um, around building my list, getting um, getting my message out to people who don't know me. I mean, for years now, I've not advertised my business, I work with businesses and also with individuals and couples. All of my one my face-to-face -face clients come through recommendation. I don't have to advertise at all. I'm very, very fortunate. However, with the internet stuff, for me, it's very unfamiliar territory. I'm using technology that is uh, unfamiliar to me. And I would say that you know, the writing the books is the easy bit, the getting them out there um, and getting the uh, email list and the Facebook group. Um, there's a, a Facebook group, genuinely you, if people would like to join. Getting known, getting things shared and spread, getting it out there, that for me is at the moment the number one challenge. Well, and that, that leads me into a good point that I like to mention every week on the Changebook Radio Show is Jim Britt and Jim Lutz are just an untapped resource for us within our global community. And we can call or email or text them at any time. Have you had an opportunity to have a call with Jim Lutz and get some support on the marketing and building your list? I have. I think it's time for another one, to be honest. And it's um, something that's actually in the diary to do in the next week or so. Um, I've just had a short spell in hospital, otherwise it would have happened already. But uh, yeah, they they have been very, very helpful. Um, and I think it's time to ask again. And it's a really good lesson, I think, for all of us. Is, um, if you don't ask, you don't get. Um, but the result is there, and we need to be mindful of tapping into it. Absolutely. And, and I want to be transparent to you and to the listeners today. Um, I had surgery nine days ago. So last week, I did not do the show. I chose to uh, interview Maggie the weekend before on Saturday. And we are not meant to be human doings. We, we are truly meant to be here as human beings. And, and like I said at the beginning of our interview, to be imperfectly perfect. And we're not always going to have the energy and, and what we need to have. But I think if we just approach each day to do the best that we can do, I think being authentic and transparent is what people want in this day and age. And, and would you agree with me on that, Gina? Absolutely. And if you look at the chapter, you'll see there's quite a big section about being a human being and not a human doing. And I think I know from a personal point of view that I've spent a lot of my life being a human being, and it's only in the last few years that I've recognised the difference between um, you know, always being busy and you know very successful in that, but actually it misses something out. And it's in the being, in the stillness, um, that you can actually really make connection with, with yourself. Um, and in that stillness, there's uh, amazing gifts to be had. So I think you know, in a very busy world with instant communication and so many calls upon our time, it makes sense to slow things down on a regular basis and actually give ourselves that space um, to expand and to to actually make the connection with with the source of, of what's bigger than us, whether to you that's uh, your religion or it's uh, a faith that's not based on religion or nature or whatever it is for you, that's what's important. And it's you know to give yourself time to actually connect with that, I think is incredibly valuable. 
Well, and, and my favorite thing that I speak and write and blog about is, is work-life balance, which I, I renamed to work-life fit last August because we don't have to fit everything into our lives and we don't have to be doing things 24-7. And, and I love that you uh, broke down different elements within your chapter uh, from Book 11. And I think my favorite... Uh, part of your chapter was under the heading of Be Loving. And I would like to just take a moment, Gina, and that to the listeners from your book. So this is from Gina's chapter, Genuinely You, from book 11. And under Be Loving, this is what Gina has wrote. The most important relationship is the one you have with yourself. You are the most common denominator throughout your life. Every relationship is colored by the way you think about it and treat yourself. Many of my clients wonder why they can't find true love. They have been treated badly by a succession of partners and are very unhappy. Others are looking for someone else in their lives to organize and take care of them. They are disappointed when the partners they choose fail to make the difference. Time and time again, I find that those same clients have a terrible relationship with themselves. They feel worthless. When asked to identify what they don't like about themselves, the list is endless. When asked what they like, they struggle to find much to say. Ask yourself, do you treat your best friend in the same way as you treat yourself? Are your expectations the same for you as they are for them? If they mess up, do you forgive easily? When you mess up, the voice in your head go on endlessly telling you off. How would your life be different if you started to treat yourself as a well-loved and valued friend? You are enough, just as you are. Appreciate what an amazing, creative, talented, unique person you are. You have the capacity to be powerful and loving. When you believe in yourself, life becomes full of possibilities. What I love about this paragraph, Gina, is I love the way you wrote it, and I can feel the happiness and energy that you put into writing it. And it's, it's so true that when you ask someone to write a list of everything they don't like, and I've done this in a workshop, and I've given the attendees 60 seconds, so one minute, and that piece of paper is filled so quickly with what you call the endless list and then when I have them get a new piece of paper to write what they like or love about themselves they sit there and the pen or pencil doesn't even make it to the paper why do you think most people struggle so much with that self-confidence self-worth where do you think it stems from and why do we see it so repetitively as coaches if you look at little children very, very small children. They believe they're the centre of the universe and that they do not see anything wrong in themselves or in other people. There's no baby that I know of that looks at its bottom in its nappy and says, does my bum look big in this? But at about the age of three or four, they become very conscious of how we treat and speak to them. And so words that are said very often in love because parents want their children to to do well, to do better than they did, or teachers will say things which begin to install a belief which has no basis in reality other than the reality in people's heads. Once that belief is installed, the problem is that we look for evidence to support it. And, of course, if you look for it, you can find it because what you do is you make meaning of different situations. Oh, of course, that means I'm no good at that or I'm not pretty enough or I'm not clever enough or I can't do this or I can't do that. And because we think, uh, we don't think about the way we think, um, most of our thoughts are habitual. So we go into a habitual way of thinking which is based on those beliefs and we never challenge them. Most people don't ever think about challenging the the beliefs that underpin their very way of life. And that's why working with a coach, someone like yourself or or me, is a good thing because we'll challenge those beliefs that are just based on, very often, 
uh, a single incident or even a chance remark. And so if you have a belief about yourself and that you believe that you're no good or you can't do something, the chances are then that you won't even try to do it differently or to do it better because you've already got a preconceived idea that you can't. So if you believe you'll fail, most people won't even try. If you're fearful of failing, you'll make decisions that will try and keep you safe, but in doing so, they keep you small. And that's the difference between people who succeed well in life, because they believe they will succeed. They don't need to know how. They just know they're going to do whatever it takes to actually get them to success. And so when I meet clients and start to talk about what they believe about themselves, most of the time it's the first time they've ever examined it. It's always just that's how I am, that's what it is. And when you start to challenge those beliefs, um, then you can start to see change. So people who say, I'll give an example. I was working with a client last week, very successful businessman, got a beautiful house, um, flies all over the world, first class on holiday. But his view about himself is that he's stupid. And that came from the fact that he is dyslexic, and in school he was in the special needs class, and he felt a failure. Now, he happens to be an incredibly talented designer. He's an entrepreneur, and if you use the normal trappings of success measurement, how much he earns, how, you know, what style of life that he has, anybody looking into his life would say, this man is a great success. But from his point of view, he's still that seven, eight, nine-year-old boy who was put in a special needs class because he struggled to read. And it's only when I ask him to look at the evidence. Now, where's your evidence now that you're stupid? Where's the evidence that you're unsuccessful and you couldn't find it? So now tell me, where's the evidence that actually that you are a very creative person? Where's the evidence that you can design um, and make things that other people want to buy? Where's the evidence that you are a successful businessman? And then ask the question, which piece of evidence are you going to believe? Um, and you see the shift, but it's only when you start to challenge the belief that the shift can happen. I, I fully believe in that, and I, I love that you have taken your disability and coined it as a gift, and you've also attributed success to your disability, and that it's been significant incredible leader and I love to talk about that as looking for the gifts that lie with us and tell us about the school that I landed up uh, working at and I think you shifted a paradigm while you were there and that was my impression from the way you wrote that in your chapter so tell us about your time at the school after your accident well if I may start just before my, my accident, I became the deputy of the school six months before the ski accident. And when I went to apply for the job, I, this was in uh, the early 80s, I was told by the head, don't bother applying because you want to appoint a man. In those days, they could get away with it in the UK. You wouldn't be able to get away with it now. But I liked the school and I actually liked him, so I decided to apply anyway. And I was appointed to be the catalyst for change. It was a school where I, when I was appointed, was the youngest bar two on the staff, and that everything had been going along in the same old way for a long time. I then had the ski accident um, in the February. Um, of the, the, I was appointed in September, had the ski accident in February, and actually um, the, the, the major effect of the accident happened a month later, uh, when I was skiing with the children from school and became paralysed for a short period of time. Managed to get back to school um, and managed to get to the end of the summer term. And then in the middle of the school holidays, I had a phone call very early one morning to say that the head teacher had died. And so I became acting head and then 
um, very soon after that, I became uh, the head um, in, in reality. Now, the school was one of those places where you had lots of people who worked um, in a, a particular way. And so my first job was to get those people on side. And I could very easily have just gone and said, I'm going to change everything. But I decided that I needed, more than anything, I needed to take people with me. So I'll give you a couple of examples. There was a lady um, on the staff who had been on the staff a long time, and she was in charge of the library. And the library was arranged at that time by the colour of the spine of the book. So it looked very pretty, all the yellow spines on one shelf, all the green spines on another, um, but nobody could find anything. And so what I did is I arranged to go to a three, uh, I asked the local authority um, to identify the three best school libraries. And I took her to see them. I didn't, uh, I didn't make any comment before, and other than getting her agreement, but wanted to make the library a vibrant part of the school, and I wanted her um, to be the leader in this. And so we went on these visits, and the librarians there had been um, primed, the teachers who were librarians, who then weren't specialist librarians. And by the end of the second visit, she said, turned to me and she said, I think we ought to do the system, the library. And so she got busy and got parents in, and within weeks, the library was transformed. It was Dewey system. She understood the potential of organizing the library in a, a way that she had never thought of before. But the power of it was that she believed it was her idea and that she took total ownership of that. What was interesting for me was not only did she take responsibility for that, but her whole manner within the school shifted. Prior to this, she'd been known as being prickly. She'd been somebody who would be quite difficult. But in her growth over taking ownership and learning to do something very differently, she was the first one to offer to try something new out. And when I went to the school, she was already well into her 50s. She stayed at the school until she was 65. And I have to say, for the last day before she left, she was the one who would be up for anything. Now, it took a bit more time, but I think it was really important. And I think one of the things that I'm most proud of, um, and it came about because of the disability, I'd like to think that it would have come about anyway. I'm not so sure. I couldn't physically get into most of my classrooms, and even the ones that I could get into, I couldn't get the wheelchair around the classroom easily. It just weren't big enough. And so one of the things I had to do was to help all of the staff, teachers and non-teachers, to take responsibility for providing excellence. And one of the things that I wanted to do is not just excellence for the students, that was incredibly important, but for each of the teachers to see it as part of their role to support their colleagues so that they rose the standard um, to the best rather than to the mediocre. And we did that. We, I'm very proud of the fact that you know, investors and people, Ofsted, who are the for those of you that are outside the UK, Ofsted come in and inspect all the schools, um, saw this as a, an innovative and exemplary uh, way of doing things. I created a, 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 a training program outside the, the, the norm that teachers came to be part of, and they helped to develop the agenda. And through that, people grew professionally in a way that was not, not the norm, if you like, and the school thrived and we won the best 100 schools in the country twice while I was ahead, and I'm incredibly proud of that. But it was because people were not only encouraged to, they were expected to support and help their colleagues to grow too. And it's a really powerful model. But for me, I recognise that that came because I had to find a way beyond my disability. Um, and I suspect that if I hadn't had to do that, I probably would have been too much of a control freak to let things go in quite the way that I had to do. 
Well, and I think when you just take an approach to whatever you want to do in your life, whether it's personal or or business, you've just got to remove those barriers. And I think the way that you wrote your chapter and just chatting to you for the last 40 minutes, I just think you only would look at how can I do this, not what's going to stand in my way. Even when you were in the wheelchair, you were like, how can I get through these barriers to make that happen? And I I think that mindset and that way of thinking is just so impactful and so powerful. And it, it certainly has led you to all the progression that you've succeeded in your life, Gina. And I just I just commend you because I I I just have such heartfelt gratitude for people with disabilities because it was half my career the last 25 years and I've just seen people with great levels of disability whether it be traumatic brain injury or spinal cord injury just overcome obstacles we're told that this is good was not to that and I just want to share a quick story with you I had a gentleman a colleague of mine who actually moved to England and I case matched him for a bit and he was uh, injured in a in a shipyard with boats and one of the steel booms came and hit him in the neck and he was left uh, fully fully paralyzed from the neck down and he just could not succumb to listening to the negativity of the medical community and his wife actually fled the country with their son and he said all I did for 11 months was close my eyes and he went into meditation for 8 to 10 hours a day and pictured himself walking with his son again. So 18 months later, he walked out of that hospital and you can only imagine the medical staff because if they don't have an answer from science, then, you know, they just look up and say there was a greater being of what happened here. And and then he landed up hiring a private investigator and found his son, who he now sees regularly. But to look at his imaging, Gina, like his neck is held together with clips and pins, and he is a walking miracle. And when you talk to him about it, he said, "I, I chose to accept nothing less than that. And it's just stories like that that intrigue me and, and much to, you know, the incredible work that you've done physically for yourself. And I, I love that you, you've had a couple of exposures to Tony Robbins' course. And could you just touch upon quickly when you came to the California um, offering that he had, Tony Robbins? that you were a little apprehensive to do the walk over the burning coals, but what transpired for you and, and how did you do it? Well, I did the um, Unleash the Power Within in London, um, and part of that course is to walk on coals. Before I do, can I just add a little bit to your what you were talking about, about disability? Um, Absolutely. I, I believe passionately that disability is a metaphor for life. And that whilst the gentleman you were talking about and the, you know, the, the disability I have, people recognize that as disability. The interesting thing for me is that most people are disabled because they believe they're not good enough, they're not rich enough, they're too tall, they're too short, they're too fat, they're too something. And they have a disability that stays with them. At least I could get in a wheelchair and wheel away. And I think one of the things I'd like to say to people is just challenge anything that limits you and don't diss your own ability. Don't, don't minimize your own ability. Look for ways that you can actually maximize the resources, personal resources that you have available to you because there are always much more than you think. But to go back to the fire walk, I went to UPW in London. There were 10,000 people on the course. 9,990 of them did the fire walk, which is where you walk across hot coals, about 20 feet of them in bare feet. And I was absolutely thrilled to do this. I needed somebody to uh, hold my arm both sides because at that time I couldn't walk very easily. And I was really ecstatic that I had managed to walk it. And as I sat down in my wheelchair 
and I was then facing the next person walking. He was in a wheelchair because I was in the special needs line. And he tipped himself up out of the wheelchair onto his hands because he was a double amputee. And he did the fire walk on his hands. And for me, that was a seminal moment because I had previously dismissed the course State with Destiny um, in California because I thought, well, how would I manage that in my wheelchair? How would I manage to get there? How would I manage on the course? And when I saw that guy, and I had no idea what his name is, when I saw him do the firewalk on his hands, I thought, I'm self-limiting here, and I'm not going to do it again. So I went and booked the course, booked the flight that night, and I went out to do the destiny. Since then, I've done all Anthony Robbins stuff. I'm a, a senior leader. Um, I've been to all sorts of courses in America. I've been to Brazil to learn things. And I have recognized that the only thing that limits me is me. And if I am prepared to look for ways to get round things, then for the most part you can do it. And if you can't do it exactly as you think it should be, you can get pretty well a long way there. There aren't many things where I have to accept I can't do that. And there are some, but there's many, many more things that I can do. And so for me, it's not focusing on what can't I do. It is definitely focusing what can I do and how can I problem solve? How can I be creative to get to do the things that I want to do? Because ultimately, the only person who's limited, if I don't, is me. Well, there's certainly not much more I can add to that other than I'm I'm honor I'm so honored to be in the Change Book series with you and I I enjoy reading the chapters uh each week when I get to interview my my fellow co-authors and I just love that we're in 25 countries and I think that we're going to slowly shift our energy from 250 plus co-authors slowly across the globe. And I did want to mention to you when we started, and again, we had a late start, uh, that uh, my heart really goes out to the the country of England and and the earlier mishap that happened in in Manchester. Very, very sad. And I, my husband's family is, is all in England. And I know you shared with me where you lived and share with the listeners whereabouts you are in England. Um, I live in Ardley, um, which is just outside the town of Colchester, which is the oldest town in England, which is about 70 miles northeast of London. But actually, I come from Manchester. I was born in Manchester. So yesterday's, um, ter- or the day before's terrible um, happenings were in my birth town. But, you know, whilst it was the most terrible atrocity, one of the things that I took from the news coverage that we've had here, that in the face of all of that awfulness, we saw the best of people too, people going out of their way to help complete strangers people offering lifts to take people home, offering comfort, offering a roof um, and a bed for the night. And I think it's so important that we don't give in to feelings of hate, that ultimately I do believe that we we need to live in our life through um, being open and loving rather than being hateful and separatist. And so it was a terrible atrocity, but there were some heartwarming stories which also came out of Manchester on Mondays and Tuesdays as well. Well, I agree with you, and and it definitely goes part and parcel with with your chapter and, and how you've written so beautifully about being genuinely you, and it's all in how we choose to interpret and process things, whether it be a global event like Manchester this week, and how we choose to take those thoughts and what emotions we want to apply. So, Gina, just really, really enjoyed speaking with you, and and I wish you nothing but continued success, and I I hope our paths will cross. There is another amazing... There is another amazing co-author, Amanda Watts, who is in uh, England, and I think she is about an hour 
from London, and I'd love to see you two connect. So I'm going to introduce you, and I just wish you nothing but continued success, and just an honor to be part of this global community with you. Thank you so much. If people would like to know more of the story, then it's in Chariots on Fire, which is um, one of my books, Um, and there's more of my story, and also the principles by which um, that I live my life. And if people are interested, they can find that on Amazon. But thank you so much. It's been lovely to talk to you. Better late than never, right? Imperfectly perfect, Dina. We, we both both have eloquently uh, definitely shown that today. And uh, I, I laugh at technology because 99% of the time it works and the 1% it doesn't. I just always believe there's a reason. So I hope you have a lovely, lovely evening across the pond in the UK. And we will chat with you again soon. That's super. You have, enjoy the rest of your day, and thank you to all the listeners, and I look forward to making contact with more of them over time. Thanks very much indeed. Bye-bye now. Thanks, Tina. Bye-bye. I just feel like the luckiest radio show host in the world on this wonderful blog talk radio platform, and being involved and in part of a global community like the Change Book series Jim Britt and Jim Lutz had this vision years ago, and each month we grow a little bit more. And as Gina says, we we are a global community that is positive and inspiring and optimistic and and like-minded. And I just love that the potential of this large group is just slowly spreading their energy and experience and education across the globe. So thank you for tuning in and listening to the Change Book series. And I apologize for our late start, but it truly is fun being imperfectly perfect. So I look forward to being back with you next week on Wednesday, May the 31st. And I'm going to be interviewing Marcus Cox from book number eight. So I wish you a great day or evening, wherever you may be. And thank you for listening and tuning in to the Changebook Radio Show. Take care.